This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. We're going to be talking RFDS today. Joining me is Media Week contributor Andrew Mercado, and we're with Imogen Banks, um, producer, I think, creator of RFDS, uh, Imogen, is that the right title? Co-creator. Co-creator. Yes, co-creator and producer. Okay, it's a new drama coming to seven, of course. If you've been watching the Olympics Games coverage, as most of Australia is, you've probably seen some promos for this new series. So tell us a little bit about it, Imogen. How, how long has this been in, on your sort of um, drawing board? Sorry, that just made me laugh because, sorry, <laughs> I spoke to my parents a couple of nights ago and my father was telling me that he'd seen the promo because he'd been watching the Olympics. <laughs> and my mother was angry that she hadn't because she was on the iPad at the same time. And we were trying to explain to her that she was watching a different station. <laughs> but anyway, sorry about that. It's all right. A little segue. Um, uh, we... First started talking about this, I think, about five years ago. It was originally Mark Fennessy who was having the conversation, so he had had a conversation with the RFTS. Um, and he'd, he'd mentioned it a couple of times to me, um, and at some point he, he you know, I, I guess he, he got my attention with it and said, you know, are you interested in, in talking to them or in doing something, you know, with the RFTS? And so... Um, you know, I, I, frankly, I was I was nervous of it at the beginning because I certainly didn't want to do a remake. Um, I was, you know, obviously the show, the Royal Flying or the Flying Doctors, sits as this iconic television show in Australian history, and so I was very nervous of of kind of interfering with that, I suppose, or of um, of looking like I was doing a remake. Um, so what I decided to do was to, you know, meet the RFDS, do some research and, you know, see what came out of it. And then um, a woman called Alana Mitchell, who's the Director of Communications for the Federation, because it's the Federation of Companies, the RFDS, um, or states, the territories really, um, she took me out flying and she took me to Lightning Ridge Um and I think to Dubbo that time, and I just fell in love. And I just couldn't believe how, what a magnificent the interior of Australia was because I had not really been there. Um, you know, I'd been to Uluru, but I'd not really spent time in those places. And just how compelling the stories were that she was telling and how, um, and I think it's just the passion that, that everyone that works for that service has for the work that they do. So anyway, so I completely fell in love with the service. And then Ian, um, and then later on when Ian Meadows, um, when I started talking to Ian, we went out again and we went to Broken Hill and that's when we fell in love with Broken Hill and that's when that sort of came about. Um, and so we started to think about it, um, you know, from the ground up um, and started to sort of consider how we build stories and what, you know, stories we wanted to tell and, and how to um, consider it as material that was relevant to an audience today. It's interesting because The Flying Doctors hasn't been on TV for a long time and it's not being streamed anywhere. And yet, if you live in regional Australia like I do, uh, the ad for the DVD collection of 224 episodes is on Win TV all the time. And 
it's there's one thing I wanted to ask you. I wondered if there was a sneaky uh, homage in there because I've noticed that the character that Justine Clark plays is called Leonie Smith, and I saw that and I went, "Well, Lenore Smith was in the Flying Doctors. Is that an accident, or are you throwing in a couple of Easter eggs for us there?" Look, there are there were, hilariously. I think that when Ian started writing it, there were a couple of overlaps with names. That we just, and it's not that he was somebody who was very, you know, we, we determinedly didn't watch, didn't go back and sort of look at it. But I think that stuff sneaks into your subconscious. Mm. Um, Leone was, was, there was, there was a little bit of that. Yes, there was definitely a little bit, you know, we wanted to really respect the origins um, of, you know, that show and of the relationship that Australia has with that show. But it's not just Australia, internationally, that show's a phenomenon. You know, and the RFDS still get recruitment and donations because of that. You know, so it's so important to them. Um, so, so you know, yes and no. I mean, there was, there was, we were very aware of it and very aware of the show and of the, you know, the characters, and we sort of did have to kind of check sometimes that we weren't calling everyone the same thing. Um, you know, by mistake or by or just through osmosis, you know, from from you know maybe watching it in the nineties and not rem- you know because because that stuff happens. Yeah. Um, so yes, I don't know if that answered it, but yes. <laughs> and hilariously, I mean, obviously the name. You know, we went we went round with a Mulberry bush with that name. We would have determined to stay away from the RFDS or the Royal Flying Doctors, but the problem is that's what they're called, and it tells an audience what it's about. And so we went, and I think you know. For two years, we tried other names, and then eventually we just gave in and just went. Well, people are going to think it's people are going to think what they think. Let's just call it what it's called. Mm. Imogen, I'm interested in you talk hearing a little bit about the actual production process, where you were, and were you lucky you were in regional Australia during lockdowns that were impacting a lot of capital cities? Um, in the end, absolutely, we were. We uh, we weren't <laughs> we weren't at the beginning. Um, because we did, we were in pre-production in Sydney first in February, and then we went to Broken Hill in March for the remainder of pre. And we were, and that was just at the moment that COVID was beginning to be a big problem um, in, you know, in Australia. And there was real fear in regional Australia, particularly, and and you know, very much in you know Indigenous communities and with you know with with populations, um, you know, elderly and. And, and there's a, a large elderly population, Broken Hill. So we were, I think, two weeks out from shooting and we had to close down. Um, so we'd been through all of that, will we, won't we, how are we going to do this, how, you know, can we keep doing all the juggle that every production was doing about how do we keep people employed, you know, we're dealing with freelancers, you know, where are our responsibilities, but how do we keep the community safe, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually um, we had to we had to go because... Um, they didn't want a permit um, and, you know, the RFDS obviously um, were high risk because they were transporting patients and they obviously didn't want us bringing, so it was a sort of a mutual, we didn't want to give it to them, they didn't want to give it to us. So, and we were shooting on their base. So we had to shut down and that was March and then we eventually got things back up and together and we were out there again in July just at the moment that um, Victoria went into shutdown so again, you know, we, we were, you know, we were obviously very, um, you know, aware of the, 
how lucky we were to be out there, how incredibly lucky we were that nothing went wrong. Um, I mean, obviously we had protocols in place and we were learning from all of the other productions that had gone back, you know, speaking to, you know, producers and line producers and friends and, um, and just, you know, doing our best. But, but once we were there, it was, it, was, it was great and we were able to quarantine and we used a lot of locals, frankly, so we didn't have to bring people in. Broken Hill is such an amazing location. I went there for the first time in 2019 for Broken Hills. Oh, yeah. The uh, drag festival they have for the movie Priscilla. And, I mean, I couldn't believe the fact that at 9am in the morning there were middle-aged men walking down the street in full drag and the farmers were in their utes getting their coffee, tipping their hats to them going, g'day, mate. And it was like... Wow, what, what's happened to Broken Hill? This is such an incredibly progressive place. And, I mean, in the first episode of RFDS, you actually acknowledge that by going to that hotel, and, and you, you might remember the name of the hotel, but you have Trevor Ashling, you have a, a drag character in there. And, I mean, that's not just something you've invented for it. Broken Hill actually is a bit of the, it, it is the outback home of drag now. Yeah, it is, absolutely, the palace. The palace is the is the hotel that Priscilla was shot in, and it has this incredible drag life. Um, and there's a you know one of the one of the drag queens worked for the RFDS, so uh, all of the or not all of them, but most of the stories um, and a lot of the characters came from discussions that we had with people at the RFDS. So because we were so determined to present it um, and to sort of represent it on screen. Um, as it actually, as we found it. And that, and that was the thing about Broken Hill. That's why we fell in love with Broken Hill. It's this incredibly progressive place. Um, and one of the key themes for us that, you know, Ian and I spoke about constantly, you know, at the, in early stages of developing it, and then, you know, everybody that came on beyond that was, was one of the things that sort of was really intriguing to us is sort of proximity. And what does proximity do? And what is, you know, what's the interplay between isolation and community and, and the sort of interdependence of people in those remote and regional communities, um, how does that create tolerance or does it create tolerance or does it not? Um, and I think that's what we sort of found all the time in Broken Hill was this sort of, I mean, obviously there are exceptions to all of this, but, but we found it to be this incredibly um, sort of integrated, welcoming, kind of sophisticated place. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I met some extraordinary people. I mean, incredible characters. You know, there were a lot of people who've, you know, gone to visit and stayed forever. Um, yeah. And so, you know, and there, there, are, there are runaways for sure, not as much as Lightning Ridge. I mean, that's a whole other story. That's so fascinating. Um, but anyway, but it's, yeah, it was, that was one of the things that we loved about it was this, that. You know, as you say, you've got these sort of, you know, farmers coming in on a Saturday to get supplies and you've got, you know, a couple of drag queens and everyone just, doesn't no nobody bats an eye. Hmm. No, I'm. Uh, <laughs> we're lucky enough, and I think probably Andrew's had a peek at it too, to to look at the, the first episode or two. Um, I, I love the way it started. I mean, it goes bang, bang, bang. I mean, it it starts with we see the the lead character a long way from um, Broken Hill and a long way from the Flying Doctors, but after just what seems like five or ten minutes, it's all set up. And you're ready to go. So there's no sort of you don't feel like you're sitting through sort of lots of setup and all that and you you get straight into it. Is was that a sort of a conscious thing? 
Yeah, it was very much. Um, I think that first episodes of anything are so difficult. <laughs> they really are. Um, it's really hard to rip through the um, information that an audience needs to understand, you know, where they are, why they're there, whose point of view everything is, you know, all of those things that you have to do. And, there's, you know, and it's really hard to kind of get away from terrible exposition so we wanted to we wanted to to do that as quickly and as economically um, and as you know elegantly as possible. Um, and so you know, I mean, that first the first sequences of that episode were probably rewritten about 150 times. And you know, and you know, Ian, Ian was was probably tearing his hair up at the end of it. But but I think that he found a really beautiful economical way of, of you know telling her story without giving too much away. Um, but at the same time without sort of being too oblique about it so so that you sort of know something's happened, she's there, you, you understand why she's there, you understand who she is, what her background is, but you don't waste too much time, um, you know, talking about it. We've just showed it. I've watched the first two episodes and no plot spoilers, but there, there's <laughs> something you do in the first episode where mm. there's a character there played by the most magnificent actor and you're going, wow, it's going to be so great to see this person and then they're not there anymore. Now, I mean, this look, this is something that I think, tell me if this is true or not. Do you do that to say to the audience, look, this, these people are in dangerous situations and, you know, the, just because you see the that this is what the cast for the show will be, that, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to be in the show forever. I mean, is that something you deliberately do to the audience to sort of keep them on their toes and say what you think is going to happen may not necessarily be the case? Um, look, there are... There are... There are a lot of things in there because, I mean, partly the casting of that was actually partly due to COVID um, in a way. You know, there, were, there, was, there was somebody else cast in that role and then that became impossible because of border closures and stuff. So it was sort of a, it was a like, ah, who, who's, you know, who's, who's amazing, who's around, who's, who can we, you know, blah, blah, blah. and because of, because of COVID, we were just unbelievably lucky that that person was available. Um, so, so that's in a way that's why we ended up with someone so fantastic in that role. Um, uh, so that's sort of to answer, you know, the question of how did we get that person? Um, By the way, you have to no. give that person a role in your next TV show. Oh my god, I know, I know, because, fantastic. But that was what was so terrible about it because then you're like, oh no, what do we, how do we only get to work with you for like a, you know a week? whatever it was. So it's sort of, it's that double-edged sword of going, oh, my God, what? Oh, anyway, um, so that was partly that. Uh, and then I think in terms of the the things that we wanted to do in the show or the, you know, as I said, most of it was based on research. Um, and one of the things that came back again and again and again and again and again is just how people in these communities are constantly facing death, you know, life and death, really, um, and how the RFDS are often having to um, treat, um, you know, people within the communities that they know really well, um, whether it's, you know, friends or family or, you know, the children of people or, you know, it's, it's an incredibly... Yeah, there's a much more immediate... Um, 
sense of consequence, you know, than we feel in, you know, our sort of urban lives. Um, you know, your experience of life or your experience of death is much closer. Um, and and this was very much based on based on stories that we'd heard, or a story particularly that we'd heard. So yeah, it's sort of hard to talk about without giving too much away, really. Exactly. Isn't it? And we and we don't want to give that away because the, the first few hours, like they're so good, and uh, it's yeah, it's just you, you've got to go into it and not know what's happening, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. I think you've done an excellent job of of uh, wetting the appetite of the audience because you. Those two episodes, well, after one episode, I had to go and watch the second straight away and then I still wanted more after number two. You just want to see how it plays out. Just on the casting, tell me a little bit about um, Emma Hamilton as um, Dr. Eliza Harold, same initials, E-H. Um, mm-hmm. But um, not somebody I know a lot about, to be honest, but um, she mm. seems to be excellent in the role. Tell me a bit about her choice. Mm. And that's kind of what's great is that I think that because she's been working in the UK, um, she started in the UK, she's been working in the UK primarily, um, and obviously the character's English, um, you know, and we started doing that thing of looking at English actors, um, you know, that was sort of where the casting was going. And then increasingly it was like, why are we, why, (laughs) you know? Um, uh, And then we, I can't remember exactly, I think it was, Kirsty, must have been Kirsty McGregor, who put her on a list, and I don't know. And then we, you know, she she tested, and she so. I think the thing for me is that so many um, actors playing English, you know, whether they be Australian or American, they go to this really plummy, sort of fake idea of what Britain is. And because Emma just understands it because she lived there for so long and she's, you know, that's sort of been, you know, the voice that she's worked in, um, it just felt incredibly natural and it didn't feel like something that was going to be an obstruction to drama. You know, when I wasn't going to be sort of sitting there going, why's that lady speaking like that? Um, so that was, you know, that was, I mean, that was a sort of a pragmatic thing um, that I believed her as English, I suppose. My mother's English as well, so... So I'm probably, I'm probably a bit overly sensitive to it from comments that she's made over the years. But um, <laughs> uh, so there was that. Uh, and then her test, and when we got her in the room with Stephen, she just, I just, I think that what we all really loved about Emma was that there was an immediate sense of this kind of complete complex woman um, who wasn't a people pleaser, um, who wasn't there to service anybody else's sort of plot or journey, you know what I mean? She was just sort of there inhabiting this woman who was um, having to make some difficult decisions in her life. And I think that that was just incredibly clear from the first first test that she did. So, that, I mean, that were the things that drew me to her and the choices that she made in that role. I really, I've, I've just found that she sort of just immediately inhabited um, that role. 
Well, you totally fooled me. I thought she was English. You're telling me she's Australian? Okay, well, you've totally fooled me. I was like, you know who this girl is? They brought her out from the UK. She's great. Like, there you go. Can we talk about um, Rob Collins and Thomas Weatherall, uh, who play uh, Indigenous father and son? Because mm-hmm. that's another great connection. It's, it's interesting. When you look back at the Flying Doctors, and the Flying Doctors included Kylie Belling, Um, as someone that worked at the base. And, you know, she was the only Aboriginal actress to be cast in a regular role in an Australian drama until Deborah Mailman in The Secret Life of Us. I mean, it goes to show you how far we've come because now we wouldn't think about making a show, you know, any sort of show, city, bush, whatever, without trying to include some Indigenous characters in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it was always, you know, from the very beginning, we wanted to make sure that we had an Indigenous character, you know, front and centre. Um, and, and you know, one of the interesting things that we played with, I suppose, as well, was the sort of expectations of who were doctors and who were nurses and who was, you know, who was what. And within the service, the nurses are incredible. I mean, they do most of the retrievals on their own. So, you know, they're unbelievably qualified. Um, and the doctors often are at base. You know, they're sort of, they're available on telehealth anyway. Oh, my God, sorry, I get so sidetracked when I start talking about it. Um, anyway, uh, so Rob was uh, an immediate, um, you know, we just wanted Rob as Wayne, I think from the, the moment of conception, really, of that character. So and Ian's worked with him before, um, loves him. Um, so we just sort of, you know, wrote it for Rob with our fingers crossed that he'd actually do it. So we were just very lucky that he did. Um and then Thomas was, Thomas tested, you know, there were a, a sort of some really interesting young actors who tested for that role and uh, and we did tests, we sort of did groups of testing um, of that role and of Taylor together and sort of, you know, mix and matching and it was just, it was, it was just Thomas. Thomas just was Darren from very early on, and then we were just incredibly lucky, um, you know, that he and Rob worked really well as father and son. Well, so, yeah, he's, um, he's, oh, no, I was going to say he's the castle, uh, but I think that's wrong. Okay. While we're talking casting, and I've got to now, I'll ask this before Andrew does, Stephen Peacock, Andrew often talks about how Seven and Home and Away can't really let him go. So I feel duty-bound to ask, with Julie McGoran involved, Seven's had a drama, did you have to find a role for Stephen Peacock at all to keep him in that Seven family? <laughs> well, look, what's funny about it is that um, it, it, when we were casting that role, I mean, she suggested him. And I think initially we were like, oh, I don't know, it's sort of not how we'd seen it. I don't know, it's open, you know, let's let's talk to him and see. Anyway, you meet Stephen Peacock and then you just immediately go, oh, it has to be Stephen Peacock. <laughs> like there's no, there's no one else to play this role. It's got to be Stephen. Um, and I think the compelling things for Stephen in that role were he, he, um, he knows that man. He just, he knows that man. Um and he is so absolutely passionate about this show and that role and that world. Um, he was, uh, the idea of working with anybody else in that role is now just it's sort of unthinkable. Um, he, you know, he, 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 he just knows it. He knows regional Australia. 
Um, he loves it. He's really passionate about telling those stories of sort of masculinity um, in the bush and representing those guys that he knows, that he grew up with, that he understands, and, and doing it accurately. And I think that's why he became so committed to the project and he's so proud of it. Um, and uh, we are so lucky that he took that role on. We really are. Well, it's not just seven and home and away that can't let go. It's TV Week. I mean, how many, <laughs> how many covers of TV Week do you think RFDS mm. is going to get with Stephen Peacock? I mean, <laughs> I reckon every <laughs> week from now until it finishes. <laughs> well, hopefully, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, let's talk about Ian Meadows. I mean, we know Ian Meadows as an actor, but, I mean, he's also this really accomplished writer. I mean, he wasn't just acting and writing the Moody's, um, but he's written a whole bunch of TV shows and, you know, this is a project where he's stepped back as an actor and is fully involved with you in terms of shaping the entire course of the series, right? Yeah, Yep, absolutely. So I knew Ian as a writer. He'd never, he'd sort of been in a few rooms. Um, so I'd sort of known him over the years and I always really liked him. Um, he's incredibly thoughtful and considered. Um, and, you know, he's, I mean, he's a, he, he thinks about things very deeply. Um, so when I was sort of trying to figure out how to shape this, I was very aware of the fact that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm someone from the Eastern Seaboard. Um, I don't have that direct experience um, of life in a, you know, a small town, let alone, let alone a remote area, um, even though it was definitely my fantasy when I was a kid and they were all the books that I read. Uh, you know, it still, uh, it still isn't true. So I was sort of thinking about, you know, how to get voices in there that did understand a bit more of that. Anyway, and, and I know that Ian ends from a small town he's from Collie in Western Australia you know and his dad was GP um so there was sort of I thought immediately that there might be an interest in the material so I started talking to him fairly early and he was you know absolutely interested and then we went on that research trip and then we were both obsessed you know and and still are um so so yeah he was I mean I'm so proud of him he because he hadn't run a show before he hadn't sort of sat in that central role um and he he just did magnificently, you know. He's such a he's such a sort of a thoughtful, generous human, um, and the team that we put together. So Claire Phillips, who's a from Dubbo, um, I'd worked with her before, you know, in um, various roles. Um, she's from Dubbo, so she's again got a bit of an understanding of the you know of the West. Um, and Ado Wills, who again has a lot of direct experience with those regions, you know, with Broken Hill and um, and Dubbo's got a lot of family from those those areas, um, and then outside of that, I mean, obviously, they're, they're, it's not, they didn't get employed just because, they, just because they'd been, they'd been to a place, um, you know, I mean, obviously, they're, they're all great at what they do. Um, so, yeah, so it was just really important that we put together a team that had, you know, an interest in, obviously, and then sort of a, some sort of direct involvement um, and understanding of what it is to not live on the coast. Imogen, tell me, how many episodes are there in this and has making um, drama series, have the financial sort of model changed in, in recent years and, and will sort of some international sales be important for this? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Um, uh, sorry, what was the first part of the question? Uh, how many episodes have you made? <laughs> oh, how many episodes? <laughs> there are seven. Seven. There are seven episodes. Yes. Um, and, look, we always had a lot of support from Kathy Payne, um, who heads Animal Shine International and now Banerjee Rights. Um, she was always very supportive of this project and, and, and you know, confident about international sales and, and they've been going well. You know, I'm not in a position to kind of announce anything, but they have been, it's been, it's selling well, which is great. Um, so, yeah, so she was sort of, she, she you know, put in a significant amount. Um, look, I think that at the moment it's very hard to make anything here without a significant contribution from international um, so, you know, there are shows being made where, you know, the international really finances the show, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's increasingly the model. Well, I, I guess your most prolific work was probably Offspring over the years. What was the most you ever did of that in one year? With two seasons of 10, would you have done? Or? We used to do seasons of 13. 13. Um, okay. I think that there was one year. See, it's all sort of becomes this blur of just production <laughs> sort of stress. I don't know. <laughs> but I tell you, Michael Lucas has this incredible memory and he can remember like almost down to the date. He, he can remember episode titles and what happened in them in season two and, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's kind of, although he tells me that now that he's losing that skill because his, his brain's gone to mush like mine. <laughs> Um, but I think that there was a year where we did, where we were trying to shift the production cycle. So I think we did 13 in one year in a season and then we went, we had a break and then we went back into pre-production and probably shot half half another series in the same year. Um, but often during the course of making Offspring, you know, I was making other shows as well. So there'd be, you know, Offspring and party tricks or offspring and um tangle or offspring and you know whatever else it was so um yeah you just I, you know i feel like i was in this sort of wind tunnel for 10 years of just production that was you know fantastic and and a really wonderful period of my life but i forget the details <laughs> um speaking of tangle you know that was a show made for foxtel i don't think foxtel people saw it but i noticed last year it's uh, it popped up oh, i think on seven plus and now it's on netflix and mm -hmm. so you know with um the secret life of us and love my way some of these older australian dramas are finding this whole new audience I mean, is is Netflix this kind of nirvana? You can be on other streaming services. You can be on another streaming service for free, but then suddenly you're on Netflix and you're in the zeitgeist again. What's your experience being with seeing your shows popping up <clears throat> on different services? Uh, look, it definitely gives them another life. And, I mean, at the moment Netflix is like this sort of great kind of aggregator library for me like I know where my where you know all the shows are because they're just all there you know at the moment I think there's Tangle, Offspring, Puberty Blues, um, Sisters, Gallipoli, um, what else I've forgotten something anyway but they're, they're just sort of all sitting there which is amazing uh, and, and they, and they definitely real. That's right. Thank you, Netflix. Um, so it's you know it's been fantastic. I mean, Tangle has has definitely had a renaissance, and there are you know a whole tranches of people who discovered it, you know, because I'm sort of getting a lot of spam about you know why didn't you make another series? Which <laughs> it's like if I was in control of that, 
you wouldn't be asking me this question. But anyway, um, so, you know, a lot of that, a lot of like, oh, my God, I can't believe got left there. You know, I can't believe, you know, what happened to Romeo? I can't believe that he'd go to jail. You know, all these sorts of things, um, which is really nice. It's just lovely having all of that engagement, which is great. Um, same with Puberty Blues. I mean, Puberty Blues has been phenomenal on Netflix. The, there are like 9 million TikToks about it or something. And Ed Oxenbold, who played David, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but he... Oh, yeah, I'm <laughs> aware. We have a list of questions. Tell us. <laughs> he started a rumour that there was going to be season three and it went viral. So all of a sudden, like, you know, there are articles on pedestrian TV and then, you know, somewhere else and then someone picks it up and other people pick it up and... And then, you know, and there's all these group chats and I've got nieces who were, you know, who were big Puberty Blues fans who were sort of 18 and um, 21 now. Um, and, you know, then they'd sort of be sending me these messages that they'd got from friends or that they'd read on a Facebook group or something, 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 you know, about season three coming and it's apparently it's being made at the moment and, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's just, uh, it's just that's been amazing watching that. Um, but, you know, you don't get numbers, so I can't, I can't tell you anything about, you know, what the actual, what the actual numbers are. I've well, asked. Look, Kathy, <laughs> Kathy Lett did write a sequel to Puberty Blues called After the Blues. <laughs> um, she only wrote it in 2017. So, I mean, you know, let's not rule that out. I think Puberty Blues is one of the great underrated Australian classics, oh. actually. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't surprise me at all that it's getting this huge response now it's on Netflix because it's the most amazing show. Oh, look, and, and don't think I haven't tried to get a season three over the years many, many times. I'm sure John has too, you know. Um, yes. I don't, yeah, I don't want to get too much off topic because we, we're here to talk about RFDS, but let me say now I'm glad you've been talking about pu- puberty blues. It's possibly the my favourite out of, out of your sort of, you know, large uh, body of work. But the other one I've got to ask you a little bit about is the beautiful lie which is a, a, a real, I just love that. And the cast, Sarah Snook, Roger Corsa, Sophie Lowe. Just just tell me a little bit about that. How how do you look back on that as, as, as one of your your works? That's the other one that's on Netflix that I just oh. <laughs> totally blanked on. Um, <laughs> that was the most magnificent experience to make. I, uh, yeah, everything about that that was so sort of creatively satisfying, the relationships on that, you know, Alice Bell, Glendon Ivan, Peter Sam, you know, it was it was just, you know, people I love. Um, and we had such a good time making it. Um, uh, what can I say about that? I think that that was, honestly, that idea was a bit of John Edwards' brilliance. You know, he'd always wanted to... Um, I think actually it was even when I first, very first started working with him, he'd been reading Tolstoy um, and he, you know, always sort of wanted to do some sort of reimagining of Anna Karenina and that's, you know, and he'd been throwing that idea at writers I think for years and Alice jumped at it at some point and 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 she grabbed it and she was just like, I'm making this show. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, and, and that's sort of how that started. Um, so yeah, it was a very, it sort of was a very creatively sort of pure experience and that's unusual in television or in anything really, not just television. I think it's just unusual. (laughs) It was very aligned. I feel like everyone was very sort of, you know, aligned in that. 
It's uh, interesting because uh, John Cornell died on the weekend. And, you know, the thing that really struck me about that was that, you know, I worked in Australian tourism for 13 years before I went into TV. So I was very, very aware of the impact of Paul Hogan's throw a shrimp on the Barbie and those ads that he and John Cornell made and they never took a cent of money personally for it. They did it for their country. Um, And, you know, when I think of the Flying Doctors, there was one European country in particular. It might have been Germany. They were obsessed with the show. And, you know, people actually come to visit Australia based on a TV show that they see. They love it so much. McLeod's Daughters would be another one that would be bringing tourists to Australia. Um, When you talked about the international financing for RFDS, um, are there countries there that, that invested in the show that are aware of the huge popularity of the, the the previous series with overseas fans, do you think? Look, I'm sure that the countries that are looking at buying it are aware. I'm sure they are. And if yeah. they're not, I'm sure that they're being made aware of that by the people yeah. selling it. Um, they'd be mad not to. Um, but, yeah, look, it, it, Germany, absolutely. Germany was mad for that show, but same with the UK. And yeah. they still have a lot of English, you know, and Irish doctors um, and nurses and support staff and, you know, pilots and because it's, you know, I mean, the RFDS is, it's a shame that it's just got doctor in, this, in the title because it's just, it's this incredibly complex, you know, um, web of people and, and skills and services. Um and that, yeah, a lot of the recruitment comes from people in Europe watching that show, and 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 as a child, kind of like forming this kind of great desire to go and work in the outback. Yeah. So yeah, look, I think that, I mean, and the RFDS were very clear about that from the start of our you know discussions with them that that is absolutely why they wanted to support us because. And also the other thing that I think that they were really feeling was that there is such a disconnect now, you know, between rural and, and urban Australia, um, you know, to sort of speak in monoliths, but um, that there is a bit of a disconnect. And so it's also about it's also about making, you know, urban Australia aware of what happens in our own country, in the centre of our country and sort of, you know, um, even the city fringes of our country, you know, it's like what what happens um, and what are the what are the key issues in the bush at the moment. Andrew, I've just got one more about RFDS. I'll ask, and I'll leave it to you if you want to finish off on any on any okay. subjects you want to bring up. But uh, Imogen, uh, um, now I might have overlooked something here, but have you worked on with Seven on a major production before? No. And and, and how no. was the experience? And, um, the experience was 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 great. You know, it was it was long. You know, so I feel like we've been working. I'd I'd never worked with Julie before. I knew Julie. I'd known Julie for a long time. You know, she was actually working at Southern Star at one point when I was working there. So, you know, she was always someone that I'd really liked. Um, and yeah, so it was sort of. I mean, she was obviously she's she's the the head of drama. She's a person that I dealt with most of the time. Mark, frankly. Um, at the beginning, um, you know, when it was set up um, and when we were originally kind of talking about it, he had a lot of the other conversations. So my contact was primarily Julie. Um, and, you know, I think that throughout the course of it, she did a really great job of representing the network's needs. You know, it's always a strange, it's such a strange relationship that, 
you know, because you're kind of colleagues and you're all trying to make something that, um, well, A, is going to be successful. You know, you want something that an audience is going to respond to, you know, and, the, and their job as a network is to represent their audience really. Um, and so there's always tension between, you know, what they want for their, well, what they think they want for their audience and, you know, and the vision that you kind of, you know, you all have as a, um, but I feel like we got through it pretty unscathed. Um, the, the thing I love about RFDS so much is that it proves that uh, commercial TV in Australia st can still make really great Australian drama. And, look, there's been a couple of misses lately and sometimes I feel like networks are so confused. They, they want to make something that's so broad and gets a lot of eyeballs, but, you know, increasingly dramas are becoming niche so my final question to you will be, do, do you think the fact that we're seeing Aussie dramas like Five Bedrooms and Miss Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries going direct to streaming services, do you think that whilst Australian drama seems to be going down on uh, commercial network TV, is there this opportunity with streaming that the industry will still be healthy and it will still be there because the streaming services will increasingly need Australian drama uh, to stay relevant here. What do you reckon? Look, I think we have to be optimistic that that is the case. Um, you know, I think that it's no secret the drama on free-to-air television on the overnights is, is you know, decreasing minute by minute. Um, you know, I think that there are some incredible success stories on catch-up you know, and I think that, I mean, obviously, you know, if you talk to Seven, they'll tell you about the catch-up numbers for Home and Away. They're kind of astonishing. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, that's a different sort of show. Um, so I think that I think it is that thing that, you know, viewers you know, viewers have become so particular about how they want to consume drama and they want to consume it, you know, when they want to consume it without ads, really. Yeah. Um, or they want to be able to pause it, you know, um, or jump through an ad or they want to be, you know, whatever it is. Um, so I think that, yes, I think that streaming, you know, SVOD, AVOD, whatever it is, I think that, um, and I'm not discounting the catch-up services for Netflix, I mean, for, sorry, for networks in this either, and I think that, you know, that, that increasingly networks are considering catch-up services as, as, you know, as sort of an integral part of their, you know, plan for drama. Um, yeah, look, you know, it's, it's sort of it's easy to get really pessimistic about the state of drama in this country, but I think that there still is incredible opportunity. Um, you know, look, I'm, I'm, yes, I think, I think that over the years there have been moments where the only reason drama's been made is because of the quotas, you know, um, and I, so I think that they are important. And I think that that discussion, you know, about quotas on streamers and things needs to sort of, you know, continue. Um, but yes, I, I look. I'm 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 optimistic because I have to be. <laughs> <laughs> Image and maybe if we could just finish on um, what might be next for you. I mean, hopefully there'll be a, Julie McGoran will be on the phone with demand for more <laughs> RFDS sometime in the future. But we've mentioned Netflix a fair bit today, and I think you're actually making something for them that that has been announced, hasn't it? Previously, yes. Yes, so I'm making a show called Echoes. Um, I'm going over to the States in about three weeks. Um, so it's an American commission. It's out of Netflix in LA. 
um, originals and overalls. It's uh, Brian York. He's the showrunner, so it's sort of happening through his deal with Netflix. And that's a show that came out of a Gender Matters initiative that Alice, Alice Bell and I ran for Screen Australia called Smart for a Girl. Um, and that was for emerging female screenwriters. And that was, I don't, I don't even know, it was three or four years ago, four years probably. Um, and that's one, it's one of the projects that came out of that. So um, it, it, it's a long and strange story how it ended up, how it ended up at Netflix in the States, but it did. Um, and it's been commissioned. It's um, Michelle Monaghan, the lead actress in that. Um, and, you know, we're in the process of casting and locations we're shooting in North Carolina. So, yeah, so I'm Vanessa Ghazi, who's the writer of it, and I are heading over there in a few weeks. And, you know, apart from us, it's, it's American, which is uh, it's an incredible story for how those initiatives can actually impact you know, yeah. a career. And that reminds me, I said that was my last, but I should ask you too about, is it Almost Family? Oh, yeah. Now, that was, was that a, a format remake of Sisters? It was, yeah, 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 yeah. And, I mean, they, and these two things are actually linked because, um, well, well, I say that. Uh, the, the reason that I got, I think I got this Netflix permission was because I was in the States having a meeting with Netflix because they'd contacted me uh, about Sisters because Sisters was doing really well on the service. Um, who knew, you know, in the States. <laughs> so they'd contacted me. I'd gone in there and I mentioned this project in that meeting and that's sort of where this, what started this whole thing with Echoes. But anyway, um, yes, Almost Family was a format remake. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it was a remake. Um it was written by Annie Wiseman, who's just done Physical with Rose Byrne on Apple TV. Oh, and, um, we love Physical. Yeah, Rose, she's so great. And then um, and it was the pilot was directed by um, Leslie Headland, who did um, Russian Doll. Um, look, it went for one series. Um, I, you know, I, look, I can't say that I was terribly involved. I had an EP, you know, credit, but that was, you know, I mean, really one of those sort of vanity credits, really, um, you know, that sort of acknowledges the... Uh, where it came from. Um, yeah. Can we so, see it here anywhere? Do you know? I don't know at the moment whether you can or not. It might be. Quite actually recent, don't know. Yeah. I should know that, shouldn't I? But yeah. I don't. Well, we can find out. It doesn't seem to be on Netflix with everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Give it time. Give it time. Yeah. Okay, Andrew, anything you want to close on? Are we... But I think we both enjoyed the show, right? Just thank you for all the great drama you've done over the yeah. year and thank you for giving us, you know, such a great Australian drama now uh, uh, straight after the Olympics. It's a huge, huge thumbs up from me. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. It's so gratifying. I was saying to James earlier that, you know, you, you sort of make the and we made it so long ago now um, because it's always been attached to the Olympics. You know, we've been waiting, waiting, waiting for it to come out. So no one had seen it and it's only just, people are just seeing it now, so we're only just beginning to get feedback um, and it's been so overwhelmingly positive that um, it's lovely. Well, I'll say this one thing after watching the end of the second episode, and this isn't a plot spoiler, but mm. as soon as I watched the end of the second episode, I went out into my backyard and looked up at the Southern Cross in the sky. <laughs> just turned the TV off, went outside, stood there and looked up at it and went, Wow. Stephen Peacock is right. Stephen Peacock is right about everything. 
Yeah. <laughs> it really is. There's nothing that man's wrong about. Uh, yeah. I Look, I've become a desert junkie. I've been, you know, this year I've been to the Northern Territory. I've been, you know, floating about the desert. Any opportunity. I'm going back to Broken Hooks. I've made all these, you know, friends out there on stations. Well, when I say that, I've made our friend <laughs> on our station. But I'm, I'm getting back there as soon as I possibly can. I just love it. Wonderful. Look, Imogen, thanks so much for joining the Media Week podcast. Watch out for RFDS coming to 7 and 7 Plus, of course, after the Tokyo 2020.